Well, good evening, church. Go ahead and uh, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. The title of this sermon is The Binding of Isaac, part 2. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. And here is what the Word of God says, starting in verse 1 of Genesis 22. It says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, my father... And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Abraham went back to his young men. And they got up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham settled in Beersheba. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into it. God, we just thank you so much that we are able to gather together corporately to sing songs to you, to pray together, and to read your word together. I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what is in your word, God that uh, you would remove me as much as possible, that uh, in everything that we read in your text, everything that we see, that we just see your plan, that we see your amazing provision, that we, is, that we see a million reasons why the Bible truly is your word, and that our faith in you would grow, and that we would have a faith like Abraham's. And so be with us, God. Uh, may we glorify you in all that we do, and if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, we pray that you would save them tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all of this. Amen. Please have a seat. 
This particular text in Genesis, the, the binding of Isaac, is undoubtedly one of the most foundational texts in the entire Bible. It sets up major themes that occur throughout the rest of the Bible, and we're going to see a lot of that tonight. But at the same time, this text also shows us something personal. It shows us a regular man, a regular man of God being challenged with the greatest test imaginable. Now, last time, I reminded us that God sends us tests in order to grow us and to show us our own growth. Think about when you were in school. Whenever you had to take a test in school, the test was not only for a grade, but it also proved that you knew the material. It proved what you learned. Well, it's the same with, with our text. We're going to see just how much, how much Abraham had grown. This test will show us how far he has come. Now, last time, because this is part two, last time we only got through five verses. But even in those five verses, we saw a lot. We, we noticed that God had finally fulfilled the promise to Abraham that he made all those years earlier. Abraham, as we have been seeing since chapter 12, has waited a very long time. He had many failures and victories along the way. But once Isaac was born, once the child of promise was here, Abraham's faith was now at a new level. It was gold standard. It really was. He knew at this point that God could do anything. Well, now that belief that God can do anything, it's being put to the test. Because God told Abraham to take his beloved son Isaac and make him a whole burnt offering. Kill him and set him on fire until nothing is left. That is the command. Now, God had previously, before that, told Abraham that all of his descendants would be traced through Isaac. So if that's true, if all of my descendants will be traced through Isaac, and yet God's telling me to kill Isaac, there's only one conclusion that Abraham could have. God must raise Isaac from the dead if I obey him here. That is what true faith would conclude. That is what faith that believes God could do anything would conclude. That's what faith that believes God has to keep his promises would conclude. And that is what Abraham concluded. So we noticed last time he obeyed the command. They set out immediately the next morning. He cut the wood. He had all the stuff he needed. And he journeyed for three days with his son and his servants. And I mentioned last time that those three days clearly painted the picture of Jesus. There was no dialogue at all for these three days. It was as if Abraham's son was dead for these three days. And it's as if Abraham gets him back from the dead at the end of our text. Remember, Abraham was convinced that God was faithful and able to still keep the promises. This was clear. What do we see in verse 5? He told the servants, wait here. Me and the boy are going to go and worship on this mountain. And we will come back. I mean, what does that tell you? Both of us will come back. That means Abraham was convinced that if he follows through and obeys God, God will bring Isaac back from the dead. That is the only thing that makes sense. So that's where we left off. This evening, we're going to finish the text. And so let me remind us what the main point of the text is. It's this. It's the faith that saves is the faith that obeys and is blessed by God. The faith that saves is the faith that obeys and is blessed by God. How do I know that? Well, this whole chapter, well, verses 1 through 19 of Genesis 22, demonstrates this truth in a sequence of three parts. First, God tests Abraham. Second, Abraham obeys God. Third, God then blesses Abraham. That's, what, that's how this text is arranged. 
Now, last time we saw God test Abraham, the first part, that's verses 1 and 2, and then we started the second part, which was his obedience to God. And we only got to verse 5, and we are not done with the second part, uh, Abraham's obedience. There is more to see. So, with that, we are caught up from where we were at last, last time. So I want us to look at verse 6. That's where we're going to continue. We're continuing with Abraham's obedience. We have seen this complete faith on the part of Abraham, and we're going to continue to see that. And just like the three days showed us that Isaac is a type or foreshadowing of Jesus, we're going to see a lot more of that as we keep reading. The text is going to go out of its way to show us this. So let's start at verse 6. We read this. It says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together. Now, I want us to notice something here. He laid the wood for the burnt offering on his son Isaac. The very wood that would be used to sacrifice Isaac was laid upon Isaac. He had to carry his own instrument of death. Who does that sound like to you? Well, let me give you a hint. John chapter 19, verses 16 and 17. Then they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, which we got to see it with our own eyes back in March. But my point was, the wood of the cross was laid upon Jesus, and he carried his own instrument of death to the very place on which they killed him on that wood. This is another clear indication that Isaac is being presented as a type or foreshadowing of Messiah. And again, I'm going to have more to say on that in a little while. But as we continue, it tells us Abraham has the knife and the fire, and it tells us that in the, the fact that Isaac is carrying the wood, it shows us he's old enough to carry the wood, which again implies that he is no less than a teenager in years. And because of that, he's not dumb, okay? He's not dumb. He realizes something is missing. My dad just laid a bunch of wood on me. My dad is carrying the fire and the knife, but where's the animal to be sacrificed? Look at verse seven. It says, then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, my father, and he replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So clearly, Isaac, young Yitzhak, realizes that something is up here. And I think it's important for us, that it is an important thing for us to remember, and I'll come back to that. Now, verse 8, Abraham answers his son. It says, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. Now, when Abraham says God himself will provide the lamb, the Hebrew literally means that God will see to it himself. So where's the, the, the burnt offering? God will see to that himself, my son. God will see to it himself. See, Abraham clearly believes at this point that there will be a lamb. God will see to it. But he knows that Isaac is the lamb. Okay, Isaac is the lamb in this case. Abraham's saying God will see to it. He has seen to it. Think about it. Abraham, God told Abraham, offer up your only beloved son, Isaac. 
as a whole burnt offering. That's what you do to a lamb, okay? So Isaac is the lamb in Abraham's mind. Yeah, God's provided the lamb and it's you. Now he doesn't technically tell Isaac at this point directly, hey, you are that lamb, but he does say God will see to it himself because God has to see to it himself because God said your descendants will be named through Isaac. So Abraham's speaking the truth. God's going to see to it. The sacrifice is going to be provided by God. God will see to it. But Abraham doesn't clearly come out and say, you are that, that lamb. But Isaac had to know. Based on Abraham's answer, Isaac had to know. So Now, the reason I'm going to tell you that is first I want you to notice something. Commentators have rightly pointed out that verses 7 and 8 form an inclusio. Okay, meaning there's, I'll explain that in a second. Notice how verse seven ends. Go back and look at the end of verse seven. The two of them walked on together. How does verse eight end? The two of them walked on together, right? Exact same phrase. When writers, writers or authors in the Bible do that, they're making a bracket. It's like parentheses. And you're supposed to read what's in between it as a, a single unit, Okay, so verse seven, when it says they walked on together, that's before Isaac asked any questions, okay? He asked the question, then Abraham says, look, or before he asked the question, he says, me and my boy, we're gonna walk on together. As they're walking, okay, then they're walking on together, Isaac asks the question. We get that conversation we just read about. And then verse eight ends after that conversation with the same thing. The two of them walked on together. We're supposed to understand that something that happened in between these two verses is significant. So what is significant in between these two statements? I think it's implied that Isaac understands he's the sacrifice. He is carrying the wood. There is no lamb. And Abraham said that God is going to take care of it. It seems strange to put an inclusio around that unless we are supposed to pick up on something that is there. Now, you might still be scratching your head, though, and saying to yourself, but it doesn't tell us that Isaac knew that he, what was going on. You're just assuming that. Well, true. But there is a very good reason for my assumption, and it's called the next verse, okay? The next verse, in my opinion, makes it as clear as day, because the next verse raises a lot of questions if Isaac did not clearly understand what was happening. The Hebrew reader would get to the next verse and say, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. But then they would go and look back and say, oh, an inclusio. So something must have happened there that now makes sense of what Isaac is doing in the next verse. And so what are we seeing in the next verse? Look at it. Verse 9, it says, When they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on top of the altar, or placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Okay, so it says they arrive at the place God told him about. I'm going to come back to that because I need to make a big deal out of that. But right now, I still want to focus on the puzzling thing about this verse. It says, Abraham built the altar and arranged the wood. And then it says, he bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. That there is the puzzling part. Why? Abraham is almost 120 years old. He couldn't carry the wood himself. Isaac is somewhere between 14 to 20 years old. Jewish tradition says he was 37, but they come to that conclusion for a really dumb reason, and it's very unlikely. So let's just say, 
He's 15 or he's 16. Can a 120-year-old geriatric man physically overpower and subdue a teenage boy in his prime? A boy that's strong enough to carry the wood, but the old-timer is not. Okay? Can he overpower him? Maybe if he does a James Bond karate chop on the back of his head, but we've got no, and they'd probably be like, eh, we got no indication of that here. There's no sign of a struggle, none, no wrestling. Think of what it would take to tie a man up, especially when it's just the two of them. Abraham doesn't have any help here, okay? To tie him up, that's what it means when it says Abraham bound him. It's the Hebrew word akad, which means to tie bent limbs together. Now, this is one of the most famous events in the whole Bible to, to Jewish people all over the world, and we call it the akedah because of this word akad. It comes from that Hebrew word. And this is the only time in the whole Bible that this word is used for binding or bound. There's any other time you see the word bind or bound, it is a different word. It's as if God wants this word and this word alone only to be used for Isaac, Isaac alone. Okay, and so this whole event is remembered as the binding of Isaac. So, and that's my sermon title. So going back to what binding is, tying up limbs and all that, can a 120-year-old man bind a 16-year-old teenage boy if the boy was resisting? It is not likely. And the text shows us no resistance. Instead, it shows us that Abraham methodically laid the wood on top of the altar in the presence of his son, then tied up his son, and then took his son and placed him on the altar. All of that implies that Isaac was a willing sacrifice. And if he was a willing sacrifice, all of that implies that he understood Abraham's answer about God seeing to himself or seeing to the lamb himself. Isaac understood he's the lamb. Okay, father, let's, let's do this. He goes along with his father's will. And the text shows us he doesn't say anything. Silent. The whole time, he simply complies. He carries the wood to the place. He then lets somebody bind him to the wood with the purpose of killing him on that wood as a sacrifice. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like Jesus our Lord. He was led like what, according to Isaiah? Like a lamb to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth, Isaiah tells us. That is what the servant of the Lord would be like. He dies in the place of Israel and the world. And I'm going to quote that from Isaiah later because it's important for us to see the full connection. But for now, it's worth saying that God promised Abraham that the nations would be blessed through his seed. Isaac is that seed, but so is the nation that comes from him, Israel. And yet both Isaac and Israel point to one seed, in particular, one Israelite, Jesus, the Messiah. And it's through the Messiah fulfilling this picture that's being painted right here in this text with Abraham and Isaac. It's through Jesus fulfilling this picture that we are saved. That's why this text is so important. And it's very impossible to miss these connections unless you want to be blind to them. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people blind to all of this. Well, anyway, as we continue, we see Abraham obey the Lord in totality. Look at verse 10. It says, then Abraham reached out took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, Genesis usually moves the narration in fast speed, but this really slowed down 
And it gives us the play-by-play. He arranges the wood. He bounds or binds his beloved son. He lays him on the altar, pulls out the knife, raises the knife. I mean, step by step. It's going through it. It's, it's slow. It's, he's ready to, to, to deliver the death blow. I mean, this is all building anticipation. This keeps the one who's hearing this for the first time on the edge of his or her seat saying, oh my, this is it. Is it really going to happen? Is Abraham really going to go through with this? And of course, Abraham is planning on going through with this. He is completely willing to obey God because of his faith. He knows this can't be the end. He knows that God promised his descendants would come through Isaac. So he knows that if God doesn't stop him here, then it's on God to raise his son from the dead to keep the promise. Loved ones, I keep repeating that because that is what faith in action looks like. If you want to know what biblical faith looks like, it looks like that, believing the promises of God. So, he, and he must have raised Isaac also in the fear and admonition of the Lord because apparently the boy has the same faith. He has the same faith, otherwise he would not have gone along with this. So they both know that God has to do what he said. Now, Abraham, in previous episodes, he built altars to God in light of the promises that God made. Now he builds an altar that threatens all of those promises, every single one of them. But again, it's because of faith that he does this. He believes so much in the promise maker and the promise keeper. He believes so much in God that truly he says nothing could stop God's promises, not even death. That, again, is faith. And Isaac sees it the same way, so he goes quietly, assuming that if he's going to die, he will be raised. And don't ever forget that Christ our Lord went quietly to the cross, knowing he was going to die, and knowing he was going to be raised on the third day. The faith of Abraham here and the faith of Isaac are great examples of faith, but ultimately they point us to the more perfect faith of our Lord Jesus. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago, that verse 9 called this piece of real estate the place that God, quote, told Abraham about. Apparently, God had a very specific place in mind. And this was it. This was it. When we were in Israel, and and John could uh, testify to this, when we were in Israel earlier this year, our Jewish tour guide told us that the word Moriah, which is the name of this place, she said that it also means to point as if God's pointing at something. It paints the picture of God taking his infinite finger and pointing right at this one spot. So it helps you envision Abraham walking, and then God's like, stop! And then he stops, and then a finger from heaven comes and points right down at this exact spot. Now, Moriah okay, has to deal with pointing, and it also has to deal with seeing, because part of the root word is also to see. And so Moriah seems to connect God seeing to it himself with God also picking the exact spot where he's going to see to it. Now, why is that important? Well, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only beloved son on this spot. And as we will see in a minute, God will provide a substitute on that spot in the place of his son. We haven't got there yet, but that's why I read the text at the beginning. So you know that a substitute is actually gonna be offered on that spot in the place of his son. There's gonna be a ram. Well, listen, a thousand years later, thousand years after this happened, God orchestrated the life of King David, king of Israel, to where he ends up at this exact 
same spot. And, and I want us to see that verse in 2 Chronicles 3.1. It says, Then Solomon began to build the Lord's temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the site David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. This is significant. See, David committed a pretty egregious sin, and it put the entire nation of Israel in danger of being wiped out by the wrath of God. And God's wrath comes, and people start dying. So David is walking in Jerusalem, and he's walking up towards the same spot, and then God stops him with a vision. David sees this angel with his sword drawn out over Jerusalem, ready to kill them all. That vision stops him in his track, and then at that place where he was stopped by God, David offers animals as a substitute for himself and the people of Israel on the very spot that Isaac was also spared because of a substitute. God stays his hand of wrath and the people were spared. So for a second time, God seemingly pointed his finger at this spot and said, right here, And then he instructs King Solomon to build the temple on that very spot. We could safely assume that the Holy of Holies and the altar where atonement was made was right on that spot. And for the next 1,000 years, with a 70-year break for exile, substitutes were offered on the same spot for the people of God. And it was on this same spot, just to let you know, that when Jesus died... On that same spot, the giant temple veil tore in half, tore asunder from top to bottom, signifying that the way for humanity back to God has now been accomplished through the once and for all substitutionary sacrifice of Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Jesus did what Isaac never could. He could stand as the perfect human sacrifice of infinite value due to his divinity, and thereby he could pay off our infinite debt He could pay off the infinite debt of all of his people. Everything this spot was pointing to, starting with Isaac, gets fulfilled in Christ. And I'm going to give a little bit of healthy, fun speculation here. I can't prove it, but I'm pretty convinced that this spot may have very well been the spot in the Garden of Eden where God walked with Adam in perfect fellowship. It would be the very place then that Adam was expelled eastward out of. And it just makes sense to me, and I'll give you the reasons. First off, the temple was modeled off of the Garden of Eden, right? They're expelled from the, from the east, and there's a cherubim there. You come back into the temple westward through the east entrance, and there's a curtain with cherubim on it. You come in, you, you have... Uh, Um, a menorah, which is fashioned like an almond tree. Uh, You then have the Holy of Holies where God's Shekinah visible presence was at. It's all modeled off of it, right? Furthermore, Ezekiel 28 verses 13 through 16 lets us know that the Garden of Eden was actually on a mountain and the temple is on Mount Moriah or Mount Zion. See, God goes out of his way to point at this spot twice God physically dwells or dwelled on this particular spot in a more intimate way than anywhere else on earth. And yes, I know the heavens are his throne and the whole earth is his footstool. Isaiah makes that clear. But God condescended himself and appeared in his Shekinah glory in a visible way to Adam in a particular spot. He then did the same thing for the high priest of Israel every year in this spot. He even 
gave Isaiah a vision of his presence in Isaiah chapter 6 on this very spot. He gave Ezekiel a vision of God judging Israel by leaving that very spot and exiting the temple. And then he shows us, though, that God will return in his Shekinah glory to that very same spot. Okay? And this happens to be the exact same spot where the veil was torn asunder by the death of Christ. And man, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, could then look right back into the presence of God. I'm sorry, these are just too many connections to say, <laughs> coincidence. No, no. And so I don't think that spot that we were standing on is a piece of real estate like all other real estate in the world, like replacement theologians try to say. When we were there, it didn't feel like a spot like anywhere else in the world to me. There was just something about it. And so whatever is going to go down at the return of Messiah, I am positive this spot is still going to play a role. I think it's been playing a role since the first day of creation. But anyhow, we're now done at this point of seeing Abraham's obedience I said the point of this text is that the faith that saves is the faith that obeys and is blessed by God. We've seen the faith that saves. We've seen that it's obedient, but there's one part of the text left, and it will show us the last point, and it's that this kind of faith is blessed by God. So let's look at verses 11 through 19 to see God bless Abraham for his obedient faith. With the reader kept in suspense, because I kind of went on a rabbit trail, so Abraham's knife is still in the air. His old arm's getting tired at how slow I'm going through this, but it's about to be plunged into the throat of his son, but God immediately intervenes. Look at verse 11. It says, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. So at this very spot, God is now speaking from heaven to Abraham, and he calls out to him, and it's so urgent. He says his name twice. I mean, the knife starts coming down towards the boy's neck, and Abraham gets shocked out of it, gets startled out of it as God says, Abraham, Abraham. Okay, and it's the angel of the Lord that's calling to him. But you have to understand, this angel of the Lord is a theophany, meaning it's an appearance of God himself. God is appearing in the form of a messenger so that he could speak personally to Abraham. The word angel sometimes means a heavenly being created by God, but the word angel literally just means messenger, and sometimes God is his own messenger where he takes on a visible form so that he could interact with people. The way you could tell if the angel of the Lord is God versus a regular angel is, does he speak as he, like he's God, and do people treat him like he's God? And if that's the case, then it's God, and that's what's happening here. So it's God speaking. And again, he shocks Abraham out of that downward plunge of the knife. Abraham replies, here I am. And that's the response that you'll see throughout the whole Old Testament and even some parts of the New Testament. When God talks to his prophets, that is how they respond. They say, here I am, when he calls their name. In Hebrew, it's the word hineni. Abraham used this word when Isaac said, my father, and asked the question. He's like, hineni, my son. Um, and so... We translate it as here I am, but it, it means more than that, not less. It's more like I'm lovingly at your service is, is, is a way to understand what he's saying. One commentator, and this was dear to my heart because I love this movie, one commentator said it was like the movie The Princess Bride. Every time Wesley says, 
as you wish. Does it mean as you wish? Yes, but it really meant I love you. You know, and if you've never seen Princess Bride, you're missing out. So whenever Abraham says, Hineni, he was saying, I love you and I'm at your service. I am loyally here at your service. He's conveying his loyalty and love to the Lord with the word Hineni. And I'm gonna exhort us with this. Whenever we read any command given to us by the Lord in Scripture, should not our response be Hanani? Should it not? Should not our response be, at your service, my king? When God says, go forth and make disciples of all nations, should not our response be, here I am, I will go? That's what's on our logo, just to let you know. When Christ says, you will be my witnesses, should not your response be, at your service? And should you not then immediately obey, just as Abraham did? Perhaps everyone here should consider memorizing the simple Hebrew word, Hineni, because it might just make us all remember what it conveys. At your service, Lord. That way, every day, when you read your Bible and you see what is being commanded of us, you can look up at heaven and say, Hineni. Here I am, Lord, I will do it. Why? Because like Abraham, we believe your promises, God. I believe you, Lord, when you said you will never leave me or forsake me. I believe you when you said that all that the Father gives to the Son will come. I believe you when you said that your sheep will hear your voice. I believe you when you promised me that you would give me the words to speak through the Holy Spirit when I'm declaring your truth to unbelievers. If we really believe those promises, and he then says, go preach my gospel, then Hanani, Lord, I will go. The only reason we don't go is we don't believe those promises. We're like Abraham early in his faith. But if you're going to be like Abraham at this point, then you go. And not just evangelism, love one another, Hanani, Lord. Husbands, love your wives, Hanani, Lord. Raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, Hanani, here I am at your service. All of his commands. Here I am, lovingly and loyally at your service. The only reason we don't is because we're lazy and we don't believe what we say we believe. So start believing it and start saying, here I am, Lord, at your service. When you're reading the Bible in the morning or in the evening, whenever you read it, and you see those commands, here I am, Lord, and set your mind and heart to do it and then do it. But anyway, in verse 12, God then shows Abraham that all of this has been a test, and only a test. Don't harm Isaac. Let's look at what he says in verse 12. It says, Then he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Now, obviously, God already knew this. He knew Abraham feared him. When God tests us, it's for our benefit. It's also for the benefit of people who are watching us. We get the chance to show what saving faith really looks like. We get to show what trusting God really looks like. We get to show what living in the light of God's promises, we get to show what that looks like. The reason why God doesn't, didn't need to learn this is God's omniscient. He knows everything. He doesn't learn anything. He already knows. But we are finite creatures that can't even comprehend what it means for an omniscient mind to already know everything. We try to imagine it, our, our, we're like, you know, our, our brain just stops. So God condescends himself to us 
And he says something like, now I know you fear God. In other words, now you know you fear God. But this is how he's condescending to us. Okay. In other words, Abraham, you've proven your faith to be complete. There is no idol that you have placed before me. The thing that you love most on this earth, you are willing to let go of at my command. Furthermore, you believe that I am who I said I am. You're so convinced of the promises that I made that you believe that if I actually let you hurt the boy, I would raise him from the dead. That's faith. And there's a reason God didn't let him hurt the boy, because Isaac can't be the sacrifice. Okay. Um, otherwise, yeah, Abraham could have killed him and God could have raised him from the dead. But for what God is trying to show here, this was exactly what he wanted to happen. And Abraham displayed loyalty. And that is true beauty in the eyes of God. Now, we know God would never command us to sacrifice a human. His word makes that clear. He was not going to let Abraham go through with this. But he showed what he himself was eventually going to do, how he himself would see to it. See, he himself is going to see to it, as Abraham said to Isaac. He himself was going to send his son, the eternal son of God, the only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity. He would send him to become a man so that he could pay the penalty of man's sin in our place. And that's why God chose this specific test. It proved Abraham's faith, but it also laid the groundwork for how God was going to save us. It truly is amazing grace. In verse 13, God then provides Abraham with the substitute for Isaac. And this is meant to show us that when salvation comes, it would be through a substitute. And just like I said, Jesus is that substitute. Look at verse 13. It says, Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Okay, so earlier it tells us when Abraham looked up or lifted his eyes on the third day, he saw the place that God pointed at. Okay, well now on that same day, he lifts up his eyes again and he sees the provision of the Lord. He sees that the Lord provides a substitute. A ram just happens to be caught in a thicket and the altar and the woods already ready to go for the sacrifice, okay? And by the way, Abraham didn't see this ram before, okay? This is something that just appeared. So Abraham offers the burnt offering, and I want you to notice the most important words in this verse. It says he offered it as a burnt offering, quote, in the place of his son. That is a very important phrase. In the place of his son. The idea of substitutionary atonement is baked into the Bible with this episode. And it carries all the way on to Christ dying on the cross. Liberals say that the Bible doesn't teach a substitutionary atonement. Yes, it does. It's right here. And we see this theme continue all the way till Jesus going to the cross. Now, the Hebrew implies that Abraham just saw the ram at, at just the right time and conveys the idea that when the time was right, the substitutionary sacrifice arrived. It obviously was not there when he was binding Isaac. It wasn't there when he was setting up the wood. Okay, Abraham couldn't see anything. The situation looked grim. It looked like there was no escape. 
But we're still called to be faithful nevertheless. We're to walk by faith and not by sight, and that's what Abraham did. And when we do so, God provides exactly what we need at exactly the right moment. And I want you to think about this also. What does Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 say? John's going to get us there soon. But it says, in the fullness of the time, God sent his son born of a woman. Um, better, another way to translate it is when the time was right. At the right time, God sent the substitute. Same thing with Abraham. Up to the point of that knife going up, it wasn't the right time yet. It was only after God talked to Abraham, then it was the right time, and then he saw the substitute. So again, it still points forward to Christ, every little detail. Now, in verse 14, Abraham rightly names the place. It says this in verse 14. It says, and Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Now in Hebrew, when he says the Lord will provide, it's literally like, it's, it's Yahweh Yaira, or more commonly to English speakers, Jehovah Jireh. The words in Hebrew literally means the Lord will see to it, which means the same thing as provide, but I think the nuance is better. The Lord will see to it. See, God providing something is big, but God seeing to it himself conveys even more. I think it emphasizes it more. It puts the full responsibility on God to provide this substitute. So I imagine being Abraham here, he's relieved that in the 11th hour, God spares his beloved son, but he still knows a substitute's necessary. So also in the 11th hour, God sees to it that a substitute appears at the right moment so that his son could be spared at the right moment. God saw to this sacrifice, he saw to the timing, and he saw to the exact place. The relief that Abraham had and the weight lifted from his heart likely caused the words to just spring forward from his, his mouth. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord has seen to it. And this is related itself to the word Moriah, as I said. So he named that spot after God's provision of substitutionary atonement at the very place God pointed at, okay? And it's on that exact spot that atonement will happen in the temple. Now again, all of this points forward to God seeing to it himself in the, that the seed of the woman that was promised back in Genesis 3.15, that the Savior would be provided. This is all showing us how that would go down. Okay, that is the ultimate example of Jehovah Jireh, God sending his son. So because of that, I agree with Paul, what Paul Washer said in a shepherd's conference a few years ago. He said, look, you shouldn't be saying Jehovah Jireh because you got some last minute money in your bank account in the nick of time. Like, oh, Jehovah Jireh, 100 bucks. This is for God providing our salvation. Jehovah Jireh, God provides our salvation. So let's not cheapen it just because you got the the Halloween candy that you wanted or whatever it might be. This is, this is about the Lord providing salvation for us. Now, verse 14 ends with a promise that is built upon the name that Abraham gave to the place. He says, the end of verse 14, he says, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Now, this is profound because it sets the stage for a lot of the rest of the Bible. A simple statement like this, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Well, what do I mean by that? 
Let's think about it for a second. First, you see the love of a father for his son here. You see the obedience of a son to his father. You see their unity in the sacrificial event. And then because all of that happens here, verse 14 ends with a promise about this place that God pointed at. It will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Now, mountains, if you've been paying attention in Genesis, have been very significant. The Garden of Eden on a mountain. Noah's Ark lands on a mountain. Babel was fallen humanity's attempt to what? Re-enter God's presence with what? A ziggurat, which is a man-made mountain, trying to do it on their own terms. God judges them. He destroys their futile attempt. And then comes the Abraham story. Abraham is presented, he enters the Genesis account as a response to the rebellion of Babel. It's obvious when you look at the words, they try to make a name for themselves. Then with Abraham, God immediately says, I will make a name for you. Big difference. We can't make a name for ourselves, but God can make a name for us. Okay, And so their rebellion is meant then to be overcome through the story of, of, of Abraham. You have this big post-flood rebellion. How's God going to solve this through Abraham's story? Well, the question is, how? How does Abraham show the solution to the problem of Babel? It is revealed in this climatic episode of Abraham's life. The rebellion is resolved by a sacrifice in the place of God's people. That is the only way back to God. You cannot build a tower, a mountain, and enter into God's presence. Humans cannot make our own way back into the presence of God. But God could provide a way. God could see to it himself with the sacrifice. And what's interesting, I mentioned last week, this is only the second time the word burnt offering is mentioned, Olah, the only, it's the only second time it's mentioned. The first time was right after the flood. Right after the flood, Noah makes a whole burnt offering to God, signifying the newness of the new creation after the flood. Okay, well, then this babble of rebellion happens. And so, and that spirit of rebellion has continued even after God knocked down their false mountain. Well, now we get to our text with Abraham, and for the second time, we see a burnt offering. This one points forward to the new people of God, which is signified by Isaac, the people who obtain a new creation. Babel is a foreshadowing of all fallen people. They will not get the new creation, but they will instead get judgment. But Isaac is a foreshadowing of all saved people, people who will not get judgment, but because of a substitute, we get the new creation. All that's being set up right here. Now, the Bible is going to pick up this theme again later, okay? And there's something I, I want to point out to you that is mind-blowing in my opinion. In verse 13, there are three words that appear together, okay? The words are burnt offering, appear, or saw, okay? And ram, okay? Ram, burnt offering, and appeared. Those three words only occur together again and one place, one place in the Hebrew Bible, and that's Leviticus. Now, it's going to happen two times in that one place, chapters 8 and 9 of Leviticus, and then chapter 16. Now, chapters 8 and 9 are all about ordaining the priests of Israel so that they can make a substitutionary sacrifice for Israel. 
okay, on behalf of Israel. But then you get to chapter 16, which is the main focus. That's what chapters 8 and 9 build up to. And when you get to chapter 16, it's all about the substitutionary sacrifice itself. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when all of Israel's sins are forgiven for the whole year. The fact that these same three words are applied to the Day of Atonement and are also applied to the Akedah, and these are the only times you see these three words together, it means we're supposed to connect them. The Holy Spirit is the author. He inspired every word of Scripture. The Lord is taking what happened with Isaac and he's institutionalizing it for all of Israel. In other words, what Isaac was in Genesis 22, now Israel collectively is the same. They are the beloved son of both Abraham and God. In Leviticus 16, Israel is the Isaac in this passage. And the words here are meant for them to recognize they have taken the Isaac role. So why, why did Isaac have the words ram, appear, and burn offering all together? Because Isaac needed a substitute to die in his place. Why does the nation of Israel have the words ram, appear, and burn offering all together for the Yom, Yom Kippur sacrifice? Because just like Isaac, Israel needed a substitute to die in his place. And so this, this Yom Kippur sacrifice from the time of Solomon and after will take place on the exact same spot of land using the exact same three words as Isaac's situation in the text we're reading today. That means Israel every year was reenacting on the same spot what was going on with Isaac and it's showing the identification of Israel with Isaac. Now listen, these details have not been missed by the Jews throughout the ages, but they have been misapplied by them, okay? By the time of Christ, a belief emerged in Judaism that Abraham actually did kill Isaac and that God resurrected Isaac from the dead. They also took Isaiah 53 and they applied it back to Isaac. They said in some way it's pointing to Isaac because they saw the connections that I pointed out here. They believed that Isaac died in the place of Israel, thus securing Israel's atonement and their salvation henceforth. And they thought the animal sacrifices were just how they maintained that atonement. But, but Isaac's sacrifice is what truly provided it. Now, once the temple was destroyed in the year 70, this idea continued. But now they don't need the animal sacrifices in the temple because they'd say we have Isaac's sacrifice for us and him raising from the dead. By the time you get to the Middle Ages, this was even more prevalent in Judaism. But here's the problem with that view. I'm about to pop that balloon with a single poke right here. The text made it clear that Abraham did not kill Isaac. He didn't. God commanded him not to harm the boy. So Isaac did not die. Furthermore, God provided a substitute, a Jehovah Jireh. God provided a substitute in the ram. It is true that Isaac stands in the place of Israel, but not as Israel's sacrifice. Isaac shows that Israel, just like Isaac, needs someone else to die for him. In other words, Isaac can't die for Israel because Israel needs atonement too. All Isaac shows is that he and Israel need the same Savior. 
Isaac is the beloved son. So too is Israel because God calls Israel his firstborn son in Exodus chapter 4 verse 22. But all of this points to God's truest beloved son, the eternal son of God, Jesus. Okay, And notice that the theme began with an individual, Isaac, the seed of Abraham, and then expands to a whole nation, Israel, the corporate seed of Abraham. But they're both flawed. They need a savior. They can't be the sacrifice. So then it contracts back down to an individual, Jesus, the ultimate seed of Abraham, which Pastor John's been covering in Galatians. The seed refers to all of them, Isaac, Israel, and Jesus. But the ultimate fulfillment through whom salvation comes is only Jesus. Only he is sinless. Only he is the God-man that, that to where God literally sees to it himself that salvation would be provided. And therefore, only Jesus could be the true Akedah, the true Yom Kippur. And Isaiah proves this for us. When we look at Isaiah 53, it's clear as day who he's talking about. I'll read verses 4 and 7 and then 10 through 12. It says, Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. And then you skip down a few verses later, starting at verse 10. He says, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished." After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. That's resurrection right there. After his anguish, he will see light. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels." Is that not clear? And it says he died, but he still receives the many as his spoil, which means he lives again. It's, it's all, all there. There is overlap for sure between the servant of the Lord of Isaiah 53 and Isaac and Israel. There are parts of Isaac that are there, silent like a lamb to the slaughter. Parts of Israel that are there. But this can only ultimately be talking about Jesus. The true seed. They all have parts of the seed, but he is the full embodiment of it. And the reason we know that is because, first off, around this passage, it talks about the servant saving the Gentiles as well. Not just Israel, but the Gentiles. In Jesus, the Gentiles will hope and be saved. We've been seeing this fulfilled for 2,000 years. Jesus alone died as the sacrifice, not Isaac, not Israel. He alone was raised on the third day. He's justified many, and for 2,000 years, Gentiles have turned away from their false gods and have called on the name of the God of Israel. Jesus is the only one that ultimately this is talking about. So Jesus, Messiah, is the true fulfillment of this all. And this is an important point for Jewish evangelism. 
Many Jews deny that God would ever present himself a human sacrifice. But what I'm telling you is baked into the Jewish understanding of the Akedah is just that, a human sacrifice. They believe Isaac accomplished the role that the Messiah does. So that means the Christian doctrine of the atonement by the blood of Christ is as Jewish as a doctrine as it gets. It is not foreign to them, even if they try to say that it is. And listen, we need to help my unbelieving Jewish brethren to see that Isaac and Yom Kippur pointed exactly to what Christians say about the Messiah. It all pointed to him. And I do believe that this will be a key point in bringing multitudes of Jews to faith in their Messiah. The Akedah is such a huge part of our Jewish cultural narrative that when they can see Jesus in this more than they see Isaac, I believe it'll all, the whole Hebrew Bible will come together for them. So if you have a heart for evangelizing the Jews, which by the way, everyone should because Romans 1 says what? The gospel is first to the Jew and then to the Greek. So you shouldn't just be leaving Jewish evangelism to me, right? We all should have a heart for this. And if you're gonna have a heart for it, then you need to learn these things because I'm gonna tell you something. The typical way that, that Christians evangelize in America, calling people to have a personal relationship with Jesus, that's not addressing the key things that the Jews need to see about Christ. Everything we're talking about today, that is what will bring it together for them. Showing how the whole volume of Scripture is about Jesus. That is what they need to see. But anyway, I know that was a lot of biblical theology, but I told you this one was going to be a lot of biblical theology. You're going to see things start here that, you, that it creates these threads that continue for the rest of the Bible. That's why I had to split this one in two. But anyhow, and you probably might have to go back and listen a couple times and take notes, and that's okay. Uh, I encourage that. But we still need to finish the text, okay? And so I'll go quickly through the rest. In verses 15 through 18, we see God bless Abraham for his obedience. He already blessed him by staying his hand and providing a substitute, but God's now going to add to that blessing. Let's look at the text. Starting in verse 15, we read this. It says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Now, there's a lot that could be said about that chunk, but I'm going to keep it short. First thing I want you to notice is that God swears by himself. He says, by myself I have sworn. He swears an oath that he will keep the promise to Abraham. When people swear oaths, they swear by somebody greater than themselves. There is no one greater than God, so he swears by himself. And obviously the author of the book of Hebrews picks that up and brings that up to us in Hebrews chapter 7, where he says it's impossible for God to lie, so he swore by himself. There's nothing higher. God is going to keep every detail of this promise. And what blows my mind is there are parts of this promise that a significant portion of Christians think God is not going to keep. They allegorize it, spiritualize it. It is folly. By himself, he swears, and he cannot lie. He will keep every word of this. God then tells Abraham why he's swearing by himself. He says it's because Abraham passed the test. That Abraham obeyed. He says, because you have not withheld your only son. 
Okay? And, and, and it's not that Abraham is saved by his, his works here. He was declared righteous by faith so many decades earlier. But this blessing is because you've not withheld your son. And, and, and the reason for that is because Abraham, by doing this, paints the picture of salvation. How do I know that? Romans chapter 8, verse 32 describes for us salvation. It says of God, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Abraham also would not have spared his own son. That painted the picture of God not sparing his own son. And so because you made the picture that is now going to show everybody what salvation looks like, I am going to bless you, Abraham. This is an amazing thing, an amazing thing that Abraham did. It's an amazing, amazing moment in salvation history. So this promise is unique to Abraham. And God's like, I'm going to fulfill everything I ever told you about Isaac. He continues. He, he says, your offspring through him will be as numerous as the sky, stars of the sky. That goes back to a promise in chapter 13. He says, they'll be as plenteous as the sand of the sea, which goes back to Genesis 17. God says, I will indeed bless you, which brings us back to chapter 12. He's repeating everything he said to Abraham over all these years. These are all things God has already promised, but now he adds something new. If you look, he says, Abraham's seed will, quote, possess the city gates of his enemies. Now, I know your translation says there, but it is wrong. It is not in the Hebrew they will possess the gates of their enemies, but it is the gates of his enemies. So even in this promise itself, you have a corporate seed that multiplies like the stars and like sand, Okay, so it's a corporate entity. It's not just one person, but then it is one person because this seed will possess the gate of his enemies. And that's important for Galatians chapter three when Paul's talking about the seed. There's a corporate and there's a singular. Salvation comes through the singular. But even in the promise itself, God's showing us there's gonna be one, there's gonna be many. And we have to understand that and, and keep that tension in mind. The promised seed to Abraham has always been meant to be understood as both a nation and an individual. The nation gets blessed and multiplies in number, but it's the individual, Christ, that conquers our enemies. Jesus has conquered our greatest enemies, sin and death, with his first coming. With his second coming, he will conquer all the fallen angels. They're already beaten, but they will be finally defeated. And all people that stand against him, as Paul Washer eloquently said in the past, every knee will be made to bow because the kneecaps will shatter and they will have no choice but to fall down before him and start confessing his lordship. Paul tells us every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. It tells us this will be everything in heaven, under, or on earth, and under the earth. Okay, So indeed, Jesus does possess the gates of his enemies. And the cool thing is, I don't know if we think about this enough, but Jesus will let us, his people, participate with him in the possessing of the gates of his enemies. How do I know? Well, one's the one, one of the few times Jesus mentions gates of our enemies. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He says he will build his church, which is us, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So we're gonna possess the gates of our enemies, meaning God has given us the power to storm the fortresses of darkness and proclaim the gospel and Satan has no power to stop the salvation of the souls that come from us preaching the Lord's gospel by the power of the Spirit. With our Lord who already possesses the gates, we go out in faith and, and possess them with him. 
That's just amazing, amazing. Every time we go out and preach the gospel, Messiah is right by our side. What a privilege. Well, anyhow, God then says, through the seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And again, that's ultimately through Christ. In chapter 12, it's interesting. He says, through Abraham, the families of the earth will be blessed. But now he's expanded it. It's through Abraham's seed. And again, look around. Through Jesus, people from all nations are leaving the false gods behind and worshiping the one true God, the God of Israel. All nations are being blessed through Abraham's seed. Now, God closes this blessing by saying he's blessing Abraham with this promise, quote, because you have obeyed my command. Just going back to what I I already said, Abraham was saved by grace through faith, but God grew that faith. He then added rewards on top of that very faithfulness that he himself grew inside of Abraham. Loved ones, that's how it works for us too. We get eternal life, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. But Christ then grows that salvation in us. He works great things through us, and then he multiplies our rewards for all eternity based on those good things we did by his power anyway. It's just, it's amazing. With Abraham, he grew this obedience within him. And then after Abraham passed the test, God said the benefits of this past test will go beyond Abraham and be applied unconditionally to Abraham's offspring, Israel. And that is why, loved ones, a final generation of Israelites has to be saved. Okay, Paul tells us in Romans 11 that right now a remnant, meaning people like me, are saved. People like me, Rachel, my dad, Al, Martha, Keith, uh, hopefully Hadessa, you know, that, uh, that, that a remnant is saved right now. But a day is coming when all of Israel will be saved. And why? It's because of what Abraham did right here. How do I know that? Look at how Paul grounds the salvation of the full nation later in history. Romans chapter 11, verses 28 through 29, speaking of unbelieving Jews right now, he says, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved. Why? Because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. And that is Paul explaining Verse 26, that after the fullness of the Gentiles, all of Israel will be saved. Some people are like, well, why does God have to save them? Because of this, his election on behalf of the patriarchs and his gifts and calling are unconditional. So Abraham's obedience had far-reaching uh, impact beyond just himself. And it's, so it's only a matter of time before all of Israel will finally bow their knee to Jesus and stop resisting their own Messiah. I pray for that day. I want it to hasten because in Romans 11, Paul says that will mean resurrection from the dead. You know, when they come to the Lord, we all get resurrected. That's what I'm looking forward to more than anything. Well, anyway, with the blessing now complete, Moses ends the text by telling us Abraham goes back to where this all started, Beersheba. Verse 19, Abraham went back to his young men and they got up and went together to Beersheba and Abraham settled in Beersheba. And so ends our text. Now, I think you could tell there was a lot to our text. That's why I broke 19 verses into two sermons. This scene, more than many others, sets the stage for the whole rest of the Bible. You need Genesis 22 for the rest of it. 
Okay, it, you, you just do. We were able to trace some of these huge themes tonight. Now, in terms of application, I think in line of, with what I said last time, we need to actively be growing in our faith. Okay, the moment we trusted God through Christ for salvation, we're saved. But that faith needs to grow. You can't just be the same forever and ever in this. And listen, when that faith grows, so too will your faithfulness. And your faithfulness will then be seen in good works of obedience like we see with Abraham. Our faithfulness is displayed as we endure increasingly difficult tests and continue to grow closer to God and trust his promises in the midst of them. But the only way we could grow this way is if we're growing in our knowledge of the word, which means you got to be in it, and our obedience to the word. The stuff I shared with you tonight isn't stuff that I just magically know. I know some people think I just wake up being able to wrap this stuff. No, no, I had to dive into the word and learn it. We all need to dive into the word so that we can see God's character, so we could see him as the promise maker and the promise keeper, so that we could see that he's good, so that we could see that his faithful love, his chesed, endures forever. I pray indeed that we have all grown in confidence in God just by hearing what we heard in his word tonight. Hopefully that will grow us in faithfulness and then that we will continue to grow in faithfulness. At the end of the day, what I've been saying from the beginning is the faith that saves is the faith that obeys and it's that faith that's blessed by God and our text showed us that. So because of that, understand this, God has given us a number of commands so let us be those by faith, that by faith obey. Let us be those that say and mean it. Hanani, Lord, here I am. Now for any unbelievers here, you got a different problem altogether. No atonement has been made for you yet, okay? You are still in your sin. And because of that, you will die and face the Lord and you will be condemned for all eternity. But if you turn from your sins and you believe on Jesus as Lord, then atonement has been made for you. God has seen to it himself. He has provided Jehovah Jireh. He has removed the sins of those who believe. He's given the credit of his righteousness to those who believe. So it's just a matter of turning from your sins and surrendering to him and you will be saved. And so don't walk out of here still in your sin. If we're about to pray and you could pray to God, Lord, I'm tired of, of just rebelling against you. I'm turning from my sin and I believe on you, Lord Jesus. I believe you're the son of God that you died for my sin and you rose on the third day and you're alive right now and you're gonna come back and, and judge the living and the dead. I mean, if you say that and you believe it, you're saved and then the Lord will grow you. If you don't, if you reject this, well, you're gonna stand before God one day and you're gonna wish that you didn't reject it. So that's why, we're, that's why I'm telling you this now. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus with all of your heart. We're going to pray, and then we're going to get ready for the Lord's Supper. God, we.